All right, good morning, everyone. We're having a joyful morning, but we're running a little late, and that's hopefully okay. We're going to jump into uh, Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? And we're talking about good works. Of course, we spent a, a little bit of time last week, in fact, almost the entire class, pref- prefacing uh, good works by tying it into the cross of Jesus himself, and then viewing good works also from the angle of suffering. So for those of you listening online who might have missed last week, um, you know, if you find yourself under a heavy cross, that might be a class that you'd like to listen to, the, the class preceding this one. Now today we're going to get into the biblical foundation. We're going to do just a little bit of analysis with Wolf Mueller on how the American Christianity fails to understand or put the right emphasis on uh, good works. So we'll be talking about that here in a minute. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so last week at the very end, we got to page 142 in Wolfmuller's text. <clears throat> and here he introduces uh, three things that American Christianity gets wrong. The how, the what, and the why. And I would encourage you, if you want to make sure and get the answer to each one of those questions, to go ahead and read through the text yourself, because we're going to be skipping around a bit. But we will have our eye uh, toward those three concerns that Wolf Mueller brings up. Um, you know, as I was thinking about this, it might be helpful uh, to, to let you know a little bit of what's gone on in Lutheranism since the time of the Reformation. In fact, there was, um, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything contemporary right now, but I want to go back to uh, the time in which our confessional documents were being written. And one of the controversies over good works came, and I think it's very enlightening, because we we recurrently see this pattern in theology, just over and over. In fact, if there's maybe maybe one thing that you could take away from um, a, a study of the history of theological controversies, it would be there's always the wrong side, the side trying to correct the wrong side, which is also just the wrong side. <laughs> and then there's the truth, which is usually taking the truth of both positions while rejecting what's false about both positions. So there's the error, the the reaction to that error, which is almost always just the opposite error, and then there's the truth of grabbing out what's the uh, the wheat and leaving the chaff, so to speak. And that's true here when we look at good works. So there is a there's this thing called the majoristic controversy. Uh, George Major. And um, his opponent, um, oh, what's his name? Mm, more on that in a minute. Let me th- let me think of his name. For crying out loud, where's the vicar when I need him? Where's my coffee when I need it? Um, okay, so Major's whole point. I can just it, it doesn't matter who said it because there were these two sides, and you can see you can see what happened. So one side said that um, good works are necessary for salvation. Now that that's the majoristic side, but you can see how like well, what's the difference between that and the 
works righteousness of Rome that we just left? Well, it was articulated in a nuanced way. We're not justified by good works. We're justified by faith. But true faith always has good works. Therefore, you're never saved apart from good works. They're always present in the one being saved. So when you hear it that way, you go, well, I guess it's not technically wrong, but it just sounds so wrong. And maybe the emphasis is off enough to make it functionally wrong. So that error is rejected. Good works are necessary for salvation. But the other side of this said, good Amsdorf, thank you. Nicholas von Amsdorf. There it is. Little molecule of caffeine just hit the synapse. Such an easy name. Yeah, right. Well, I almost named my first son Nicholas von Amsdorf. Rody, but Juliana wouldn't have it. Uh, just joking. So, Nicholas von Amsdorf. All right, here's the opposite side. Here's the opposite side. Good works are detrimental to salvation. How could you say that? How could you ever say they're detrimental to salvation? Well, what if one trusts in his good works along with Christ? Then are they detrimental to salvation? Yeah. So this too, you could kind of go, well, it's technically correct, or there's at least a correct way to understand that. But just on its surface level, the way it functions, that's not right. That's not how we should talk. All right, so you've got these two errors. Major good works are necessary for salvation, and Amsdorf, good works are detrimental to salvation. And the truth lies in the middle, threading out the, of course, we're not justified by good works, and they're not in that sense necessary. Okay, They can be detrimental to salvation or dangerous if we trust in them. So we're not going to trust in them. We're going to trust in Christ alone. We're going to be justified by grace through faith apart from works. But then we're going to say good works still come because the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us new, and produces his fruits in us and through us, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so I think that that's kind of a helpful way for us to jump into a, a kind of Lutheran struggle that's been around for you know almost 500 years in regard to good works and how we understand them. Now, you can see on 142, the, the second, um, or maybe it's the first full paragraph, Wolfmuller writes, the Lutheran church has always been accused of being against good works. This is perhaps because Lutherans taught the danger of trusting in our good works for salvation. But the accusation is false. Lutherans have always taught the importance and necessity of good works, as well as how they are possible, what they are, and why they are done. So, are good works necessary? Yes. Are they necessary for salvation? No. Are they detrimental? If trusted in, yes. If not trusted in, no. And so you see how we're threading the needle between these two errors of George Major and Nicholas von Amsdorf. All right, let's look at what's quoted here. Now, um, if you look at the bottom of this quote, you're going to see a whole bunch of letters and numbers. You see that? AC is Augsburg Confessions. That's the foundational document of the Lutheran Reformation. And that's Article 20 and then paragraphs 27 through 31. So this is right at the start of the Reformation. And really, in a sense, the rest of the documents of the Book of Concord are all commentary, explanation, defense of 
the Augsburg Confession. So this is getting us right down to the root level of what the Lutheran Reformation has always been about and what its teaching has always been in regard to good works. That's the importance. So here we read, Furthermore, we teach that it is necessary to do good works. This does not mean that we merit grace by doing good works, but because it is God's will. So look, it's not necessary in the sense that we have to earn or merit God's grace, but it is necessary because it's God's will, and God's will is pretty necessary, don't you think? All right, continuing. It is only by faith and nothing else that forgiveness of sins is apprehended. The Holy Spirit is received through faith. Hearts are renewed and given new affections. Not so things that are attractive, things that it desires, that it wants, that it um, delights in. Okay, so it's given new affections, and they, that is our hearts, are able to bring forth good works. Ambrose, now this is an early church father. Is Ambrose fourth century? I think so. Fourth century, Ambrose says, Faith is the mother of a good will. That's interesting. So faith stands on its own. It's its own thing. But then it becomes a mother. It gives birth to a good will. That's the change in will, what we're calling the Holy Spirit's renewal or regeneration. So even Ambrose here makes a distinction between the two. Faith is the mother of a good will and doing what is right. Okay, that's the end of the Ambrose quote. Without the Holy Spirit, people are full of ungodly desires. They are too weak to do works that are good in God's sight. All right, so without the Holy Spirit, people are full of ungodly desires. Now, we know that that's manifest and true, but in a more fundamental sense, they're filled with selfish desires. It is the self curved in on itself so that everything, as a fallen human being, everything I want to do in some way benefits me. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. So that's fundamental to being a fallen human being, is being filled with ungodly, selfish desires. And you can even do sort of like externally good things, but it's always from some form of Selfish motivation. Um, what my ego is going to get out of it. Uh, that I'm going to be able to pat myself on the back for how selfless I am. Which is, of course, profoundly selfish. So this is from what we are being converted. We're being pulled outside of ourselves to be selfless. Um, to have Christ as our focus. All right. So do Lutherans teach good works? Absolutely. Again, that first line. We teach that it is necessary to do good works. Not that you're justified by good works, but because they are God's will. God has justified you. Therefore, it's necessary to do his will. So far, so good? All right. Now, this next section is hilarious, so we're going to do it. The danger of being a dog trainer. Imagine your uncle has a raging out-of-control dog. Maybe you are that uncle. Every time you visit his home, things are in a desperate state of disrepair. The curtains are ripped off the wall, the couch cushions are shredded, 
Food and filth cover the floor, and blood is everywhere. The blood belongs to your cousins and your aunt. They're all in the hospital because this dog attacked them. Your uncle also has wounds from this out-of-control dog. A missing finger, gashes on his face, stitches in his leg. You know if your uncle lives much longer with this dog, he will die. This is insanity, you say to your uncle through the window, shouting over the dog's growl. That dog's just going to kill you. Nonsense, he shouts back. I've just got to work harder training him. Your uncle holds up the books that just came in the mail. Forty days of dog training purpose. Your best dog now. <laughs> and become a better dog. <laughs> Anyone observing this situation from the outside can see the absurdity. You cannot train a dog like this. And yet, this is how most Christians treat their old Adam, their sinful flesh. They are busy trying to train and reform the sinful flesh. Insanity. You can't teach the old Adam new tricks. All right, so here's the point then. There is only one thing to do with our sinful flesh. Put it to death. All right, so one of the places that American Christianity fails, and I think this would kind of fall under the category of how, is it sees the sinful nature as something that's capable of reform. And you can think about versions of this in Roman Catholicism, versions of this in American evangelicalism, but this idea that, you know, you're just, you're just one more seminar, one more Christian self-help book away from finally reforming the old Adam and turning it all around. Okay? The Lutheran understanding, and you're going to see it's the biblical understanding, isn't about reforming the old Adam. It's about putting the old Adam to death. So let's talk about that. Let's first get our biblical grounding. Now, Wolfmuller has selected uh, two different verses, one from Galatians and the other from Romans. First from Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this crucifying of the flesh takes place when we are united with him in a death like his, when we are buried with him through baptism. So Romans 6 shows us this um, being united with him in his crucifixion so that in the waters of holy baptism, our flesh is crucified, has been crucified with its passions and desires, then what is it to live as a Christian every day? It's to instantiate that crucifixion so that every day is a day where, you know, you wake up and you say, I'm going to crucify my sinful flesh. I'm not going to try to make it better. I'm going to try to kill it. Right. Um, now, we'll talk about that as we as we go along. I I know that's leaving some questions in our minds, and that's fine at this point. So let's just lay the foundation. Romans 8.13, Wolf Miller quotes. Here Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, so all we're doing at this point in the text is showing that this is not a matter of, gosh, if I could just get the right teacher, 
or the right book or the right seminar, I get this figured out. Rather, it's this is not going to be figured out until it's put to death. And so we go about the business of putting the, the old Adam to death right up until Christ does in finality, which is what death is for the Christian. It's a kind of circumcision, a cutting off of the old Adam within us. It's like passing through the eye of a needle, and what doesn't fit through is all the old sinful flesh that can't enter in. That's what death is. This is why Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In death, you don't actually die. You squeeze like a camel through the eye of a needle, and what's left behind, what dies in death, is not you, but the old Adam that is still clinging to you. So this part of, this part of mortification, putting to death the old Adam, is begun in baptism and completed in death. But these two bookends then show our entire lives between those two bookends are to be a daily drowning, a daily crucifying, a daily putting to death of the old Adam within us. No compromise, no carrot and stick, just no die. Okay? So that, that already is a pretty big mental shift. Uh, from American evangelicalism in the landscape where you just need to be improved, you just need to be reformed, you just need X, Y, or Z, and you'll get to a, a different and better place, you'll be done with this. Uh, biblical theologies, no, you're not going to be done with it until the old Adam is dead. Make sense so far? No, it's a little abstract, but at least we've laid the foundation. All right? Let's... Um, Let me see where we want to go. I think I think what I want to do here on this page is just point this out to you so that you can you can take a look at it on your own. But over on page 144, um, right at the top, uh Wolfmuller again now he's he's kind of expanding um, this warfare. Right at the top in this big bold font, he says, When we call the Lord our friend, we call the devil our enemy, and he returns the favor. And then in John 15, 18 through 19, it's also going to touch on the world. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what we've seen is our, the old Adam within us, the devil and the world, are mortal enemies. And there's no compromise that can be made. And there's no middle ground of moral neutrality where you can go like, well, I'm morally neutral. I can I'm free to choose the evil or choose the good. That's not the case at all. That's a, it's a very inaccurate way of understanding ourselves and thus a very inaccurate way of understanding our place and role in this world. We want to see the sinful flesh within us as a mortal enemy. We want to see the world um, as a mortal enemy. We want to see the devil as a mortal enemy. There's no compromise. It's just war and putting these things to death. I see a hand risen up front here.
um, the verse from Galatians 5.24 and also Romans 8.13. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example? Of mortifying the flesh? <laughs> yeah. how sure. To, how to um, crucify the flesh and put it to death. Sure, this is going to be a baptismal reality. That's where he's taking us. Um, but I think, I think maybe the most fundamental way is to, to acknowledge it as wrong. That, that's taking place in the mind. To confess it as a sin. That's taking place with the lips. And then to cease to do the deed or to do its opposite. That's the action. Okay. We sin in thought, word, and deed, and so those are going to be the very battlegrounds upon which we fight. And the fundamental aspect of that fighting is going to be repentance. Okay. It's, where, it's where when Jesus says repent, he means that our whole lives would be lives of repentance. Okay. So that's that's fundamentally what the warfare is. Now, what that's doing when, okay, let's say a sinful thought, a sinful temptation enters your mind. How do you deal with that? Do you let it manifest into words? No, you stop it there. You repent of it. You bring it in conformity of the will of Christ. You let the will of Christ trample over that. Um, it's an interesting take. I don't know if it was you, Vicar. Remember the, I, I don't know if it was you that said this. But I'm going to blame you anyway. But the way that the church fathers read that psalm of uh, dashing the infant stones, uh, the infant's heads against the stones, um, they view that as a metaphor for this dynamic. But when the sinful thought is just newborn within your mind, strike it down, lest it grow and mature into words or deeds. So I think that that's just indicative of the mortal nature of this conflict. It's mortal combat, and it's life and death combat, and it, it is formed primarily in in terms of repentance, turning away from. But that is when we recognize it, but most of the time we don't. Hmm? So that is when we recognize it, but most of the time we don't. And here is where we need to... Um, Reevaluate how it is that we understand ourselves as Christians. I think for a long time we have all kind of suffered from this idea that being a Christian is memorizing the right doctrinal points and making sure I'm straight and I can correct anybody who's not straight on these doctrinal points. Now, that's an important component to be sure, but the invitation and indeed the reality that we're given in Christ is to recognize that we are a new creation. And that takes a new shape and a new form. It's a, it's a new mind by which we perceive the world and ourselves and everything in the world in a new way. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but what we're starting to do now is articulate how it is that not only, we, not only do we drown the old Adam daily, but the new man within us emerges and arises. Okay. How does he emerge and arise? Well, the, the bad thoughts are already there. It's the new man who's recognizing them and killing them before they act. Or after the fact, it's the new man who is saying, 
I see what that did. I see that I let that thought have its way, and it ruined my conscience. It ruined my mood, we would say, right? Um, and so even after the fact, like even after the old man has made his advance and the thought has kind of taken root and maybe borne fruit in word or deed, whenever the new man becomes aware of that, he immediately seeks to destroy that fruit. So if it was a deed, what does he do? Like Zacchaeus, he tries to make amends. He tries to bear his own fruit worthy of repentance, fruit that destroys the evil fruit of the evil tree within him. And so he goes to set right the wrong deed that he did, or he goes to set right the wrong word that he spoke. And he goes to lament and pray that God would correct his thinking and strengthen him so that that thought doesn't blossom forth again into bad fruit of word or deed. So this is fundamentally the spiritual warfare. All of this is very abstract. And to be a Lutheran Christian is to live baptismally. So the shape and form of this is when you wake up, you make the sign of the cross in remembrance of your baptism. You're clothed in Christ Jesus. His atonement on the cross means that in body and soul, you are his. You're not your own. He's purchased you with a price. Your sins are forgiven. You are his child. You are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where you were clothed in Christ, Galatians 3.27 says. So now you, you begin your day as a baptized child of God. You begin your day with a clean conscience. You pray our Father, and you realize that you're entering into a day as a unit. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Some very wise man said that. So don't worry about tomorrow. You wake up and you say, today, what is the shape of my vocation? What are the temptations I'm likely to face? What is it that God would have me accomplish according to his word in my vocational life? What are my duties? Now, this is all, you know, when you wake up and you're a husband or a wife, you have a set of duties. When you wake up and you're a child, you have a set of duties. When you wake up and you're an employer or employee, you have a set of duties. As a citizen, you have a set of duties. If you're in the church, you have a set of duties. If you're single and languishing, you need to come talk to the pastor and find out how you can make the church your family and find vocational meaning and shape and form in your life in serving the church. We talked about that with the Chrysostom marriage class, that there's no such thing really properly as a single person. You're in your father's house, and if you're outside of your father's house and not married, you ought to consider yourself as married to the church. That is, that is your primary vocational relationship until replaced by a different one. So we need to change the shape and form and live as Christians, and these are manifest ways in which we can do that. And we start very basically with the warfare of prayer, too. We begin in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the very first act from our lips is an act of profound warfare. And I'm not going to get hung up on the details here, whether you conf- whether you um, state out loud the Ten Commandments and then go into the Creed and then go into the Our Father, as the Catechism would have us, great. If you go right into the Our Father, great. I'm not hung up on the specifics, but the first act is a prayer recognizing that you of your own strength are insufficient for the task ahead. It all depends upon God and his blessing. But you're going to partner with him and work with him in these things. Okay, and then you, you have your, you have your morning prayer, 
you have your breakfast prayer, and the meal itself becomes pseudo-sacramental, because you realize that this food is a gift from God, as is everything. His mercies are new every day, and you go, what mercies are new today? Well, the ham and egg omelet that you have right in front of you wasn't there yesterday, it's here today, it's new, it's a mercy. Everything that you have, you go to your closet, you go, what mercies are new today? Well, you didn't wear that shirt yesterday, that's a new mercy today. That shirt is in your closet and available for you to wear. So we need to open our eyes to the fact that everything is gift, and his graciousness is everywhere. It's like the psalmists say, his glory fills the earth. And you go, I don't know what that is. That's because we haven't we haven't thought spiritually, we haven't thought biblically, we, so we don't know that to see what's there. We haven't been taught to perceive it. Um, we haven't grown and matured in that perception. So uh, you go about your daily task. Lunch comes, you pray. Dinner comes, you pray. End of the day comes, you pray. Now the end of the day takes on a shape because you know your failures. You know what you did and what you left undid, <laughs> undone. And that then becomes the way in which you confess and mark yourself once again with the cross. I am confessing to my Heavenly Father who has already reconciled me to Him despite my sins on account of Christ, blotting them out with His blood, baptizing me, cleansing my heart so that you go to bed with a clean conscience before God. Insofar as you are able, you want to go to bed with a clean conscience with all other people too. Not to let the sun go down on your anger, that's not always possible. But bare minimum essential is you want to be clean and clear with God. Commend yourself into his hands. Sleep the sleep of the blessed. Maybe he'll wake you up with some anxiety so you have time to pray. That happens to us more than often than we'd like to admit. Um, but, But then we practice death. We commend ourselves into his hands. We We relinquish the control we think we have. And we go off into sleep. And guess what he's doing? This is where the, this is where the Hebrew conception is so much better than our conception. So, remember all the way back in Genesis, the creation of the world, remember how it goes? It goes, evening and morning the first day. So, how does this reorient our thinking? While you're sleeping, that's the first half of the day. What, what is God doing? He's already lining up and preparing everything that's going to happen for the second half of the day. This is kind of the meaning of that text that we hit. Um, remember last week? Look at uh, page 141. This is to make it all a little more concrete. Look at the top of 141, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk into them. Now, it's true that he did this before the foundation of the world, but it's also true that he did this while we were sleeping. <laughs> While we were asleep, he was preparing beforehand the good works that we would do that very next day. All right. So then the morning comes and we rise and we repeat. And this takes a cycle of, of seven or six, however you want to think about it, and then it's the Lord's Day. And then we're dedicating and devoting ourselves to the Lord. All right, this is the battleground. This is the battleground. That's it. I'm sorry. It doesn't get any more glorious. And so often the delusion of our age is, well, we've got to fix the world. Well, we can't fix the world. Well, then let's just despair. You know, no! The battleground is so much more humble than that and so much more small than that, but this is exactly where God works. 
and the humility and smallness. So the battleground is, did you keep your morning and evening prayer? Did you keep your meal prayers? If you're the head of a household, did you lead your family in those things? That's the battleground. Don't move on to anything more grand until you've got that. And then, and then when you've got that and you stand, be careful and take heed lest you fall. Because I can tell you from experience, you only stand for a little while and then you fall. And then you got to fight and wrestle to pick back up those pieces again. But that is the spiritual warfare. That is the ongoing crucifixion and drowning of the flesh. And that's the shape it takes. Okay. Now, it, suffice it, if you're able to build on, on that foundation, you've laid that foundation and you're fighting that fight daily, and it's now you can build and expand. Okay. Now, what else? Do, what else do, would God have me do? What else could I do? What else? What are, are the other callings? And by those callings, I don't mean anything like woo-woo and the Holy Spirit put it on my heart and all of this stuff. I just mean, what opportunities has God opened your eyes to where you go, I could help. Do that. I would love to help. I would delight in helping. Sometimes it's even like, well, no, I wouldn't delight in doing the thing itself, but I would delight to see that person helped, and that's the way they need to be helped, and so. I'm doing it, right? So this then just forms the the ground of our life and our being. It's always centered on Christ crucified. It's always centered on our being united with him in holy baptism. Um, You find then the rhythm of the Lord's Supper and how absolutely essential it is and how if you miss it on a Sunday, because the Lord's Supper is the rhythm of the week. Baptism is the rhythm of the day. And you see all other gifts being given, the food on your table as always reminding you and driving you to the sacrament of the week, which is the Lord's Supper. And so then this is the functional economy of living as a baptized Christian. And even though, even though the details might differ from one century to another, not the foundation, not the fundamental. What I've just laid out for you is what all Christians have been doing, not just for 2,000 years, but going all the way back to the New Testament days. This is what God's people are doing. So don't get hung up on the particulars or the form, but what I've essentially laid out is waking up and looking at your life in terms of what God has called you to do and fighting the battle in terms of just prayer, morning prayer, meal prayer, evening prayer, confessing sins, living within his grace, repeating the cycle of the week, participating in the cycle of the year, which the Old Testament had a liturgical church year. The New Testament has a liturgical church year. Participate, join in. This is our lives. This is really the, this is the new creation already breaking in and breaking. Why? Your day is objectively new now. It's going to play out different than it would had you not been baptized and had you not been starting to fight this fight. Your week is too. If suddenly, if you're not fighting this fight, it suddenly becomes an option to miss on Sunday. If you're fighting this fight, you would sooner miss anything else than church on Sunday. Um, it, what appears to us, if we're not fighting the fight, to be completely optional and frivolous and weird, this thing called a church year where we're centered on Christ, now all of a sudden when you're fighting the fight becomes the most essential thing ever. What You think we're still orbiting around this world, son? No, I don't think so. We are orbit, orbiting around the heavenly son, the S-O-N. He is the one we're orbiting around, and I'd, so, I'd sooner give up anything than give up that. So it really transforms day Week, months, year, seasons, everything is transformed. And you start seeing Christ everywhere. You start seeing the glory everywhere. You start seeing Christ every single day in the dying and rising. When the sun goes down, that's the 
glorious death of Christ, and we follow him into death and sleep. And when the sun rises, that's the glorious resurrection of Christ, and we follow him into resurrection. You see, the, all creation is suddenly singing of the death and resurrection of Jesus every day, every week, with the Lord's Day and the rest that comes at the end of the labors. Um, Christ dying on the sixth day and uh, and us saying, thank goodness it's Friday. And then resting and rising on Sunday morning and being made alive and rejuvenated. And, and then the seasons of the church here and the seasons of the cosmos. I mean, what do the seasons teach us? Death and resurrection! Every single year there's a cosmic death and resurrection right in front of our eyes. If only we could see it, we'd see Jesus written into the very seasons, the death and resurrection of Christ. We see his glory filling everything. We see all things being made new. And now we're, now we're kind of coming into terms with this idea of the apocalypse being just that. Apocalypsis means unveiling. Right? The vellum falls away from reality and we see what already was. He, behold, I am making all things new, present tense, and he's been doing that now for 2,000 years. All right, So we see what is already made new and then we see all of that in and of itself taken up, transfigured and transformed into its final state of which no one can speak. A glory too great for words. A glory too great for our present minds. But that's that's how it ends, not just as, hey, watch me do everything ex nihilo. It's, no, watch me unveil what already is and glorify that, magnify that. So that's, yeah, I mean, this is Christianity, and this is what we need to recover. It's not so much a set of doctrines. You need the doctrines so that you can navigate all of this. But um, fundamental is learning how to be Christian. Okay, there's my little TED Talk on that. So, all right, yeah, good. So we want to recover this, right? We want to fight this fight and re- recognize that this is um, the spiritual, the true spiritual warfare. Oh yes, yeah, the call to fight with the full armor of God, putting on the full armor of God, and taking up the sword. So all of the fighting uh, motif that we're in battle, um, and then the sport motif, which I'm going to hopefully talk about this Sunday. But um, look at the look at the uh, fighting. In uh, page 144, and we, um, if you go underneath the quote, the John 15, 18 through 19 quote, just to that next paragraph that begins the en- enmity, do you see that? The enmity of the world and hatred of the devil are marks of the church and marks of the Christian. The Christian is a soldier. See, this is an identity we need to recover. Um, The Christian is a soldier engaged in a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, quoting, um, and he's got he's got Second Timothy two three quoted here with um, Ephesians six ten through eighteen, and I think six ten through eighteen is the armor of God passage. So, what does Second Timothy two three say? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Why can, why can Paul guarantee that they're suffering? Because when you oppose your own flesh, that's definitionally suffering. When you oppose the world, the world is going to bring suffering upon you. When you oppose the devil, he is going to bring suffering upon you. So there's, 
there's a guarantee that you're going to suffer. Now, how do you suffer? You don't become surprised, right? Oh, there's resistance. <laughs> yeah, of course there's resistance. You're doing the right thing. Don't think that this resistance is coming from God. It's coming, it's not coming from God. It's coming from Satan. God's allowing it from the hand of Satan to befall you. Why? Because as Satan means for it to attack you and put you to death, God's saying, hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And he's exercising our faith. And you can do this without being self-righteous in the least. You can look back at times in your life and be like, I never could have handled that. I would have fallen apart at the seams. I would have fallen into such great sin and despair and shame and vice. But by God's grace and mercy, I know how to handle that now. I know how to handle myself now in that situation. I'm not going to do it. There's nothing self-righteous about that. And if you want to make sure of it, just say, Thanks be to you, O Lord. You alone did this. You alone have wrought this. By your Holy Spirit and by the various smaller crosses you've laid upon me that have trained me and exercised my faith to be able to stand even when this is upon me. Okay, but we want to see ourselves as soldiers and we want to identify suffering as blessing, as something that is good, that, or if it's not good in and of itself, it's God is going to work good through it for those who love him. And we need to suspend our, our way, our reason and our human way of thinking and entrust ourselves fully to God, even when it doesn't make sense. That's all of the Christian faith. It's every article of the faith. Okay, I see a hand trying to desperately... Yeah, right up here. This might be a conversation for after, but I'll ask the question now if you think it's pertinent for everyone to hear. Understanding suffering correctly, when someone in our lives is hit with suffering, such as the death of a child, how can we, knowing what we know, again, staying in our vocation as a friend, comfort them? You can't say... You're going to be stronger or, you know, it'll all work out because you love God. What it's, it's a terrible thing. And if the person is now questioning their faith because of it, you see Satan's hand in it. You know, how yeah. can you understanding? Yeah. So the loss of a child, um, is probably amongst the, the very worst, if not the worst affliction that one can face. And I think we know that because when we look at the sacrifice that God himself makes, and that we say that that's the greatest of all sacrifices, it's precisely that, the giving up of his child. Now, this takes careful pastoral care, or just at least Christian care, if you're going to minister to your friend and kind of try to put wine on the wounds and then oil and bandages. But as with all suffering, the answer to it lies in the mystery of the cross. And the answer isn't so much like, oh, you gave me that information, now it's all okay. That's not it. It's more like you've given me a way to understand, a way to start thinking, a way to start processing, meditating, and, and above all else, a way to pray. So in that circumstance, again, just in the most general way possible, we want to see that particular calling as God lays it upon Christians as like the, one of the highest callings there is because he's inviting them into that which he himself experienced. And there's a, there's an honor and a glory in that and 
an immense respect and love that God has for a son or daughter that he would say, I want you to experience this. It's going to draw your heart closer to me in this way than is possible otherwise. And just as, by the way, just as my son rose from the dead, your son or daughter is going to rise from the dead too in due time. So be healed, but also learn. And now this is a process. This is a way to think and meditate, but it centers our focus on the cross and on the person of God. Now this is the, this is the secret to all of suffering. And it just takes a long time sometimes to sort out, figure out, wrestle with, but that's okay. Um, even, uh, even Jacob, remember his, you know, it's wrestling with God. That's what prayer is. That's what life under the cross is. Jacob's fleeing as a fugitive. He's effectively lost his whole family. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to compare apples and apples, but I'm just saying that that's iconic where he goes to sleep and wrestles with God and demands that God bless him, even though he doesn't understand. That's iconic for how we have to grab a hold of, and by the way, who he's wrestling with is Jesus. We have to grab a hold of Jesus and the ladder of, you know, that he sees eventually is, um, is the cross. So we have to grab a hold of Jesus, grab a hold of the cross, wrestle to understand our lives in light of the one who is life. And that becomes the pattern and shape and form of healing and meaning and understanding. So that's the best I can do generically. But this is where, you know, I, again, we need each other as Christians, but we also, we all need pastors because we all need people who, you know, when you're inside of the grief and you're tangled up and you're wrestling with God and the devil's attacking you and the world's attacking you, it's not easy to come up with these ideas. You know, you have to have these ideas proclaimed and spoken and given to you uh, by another. So hopefully that is of some help. Pastor. Yes, please. Uh, just, just to clarify, uh, there, there may be a tendency even in me to think that this battle is between the flesh and the new man uh, in me. But it it's really, I think this verse from uh, Romans said, it, it's between the Holy Spirit and the flesh. So the Holy Spirit is crucifying the flesh to a large degree, and I'm I'm using the process that God laid out, the, the the daily process, the weekly process, you know, and the calendar process of everything dying and being made new. Uh, do I have that right? I guess uh, because there's a ten. It's like uh, the battle is 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 God. The Holy Spirit is 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 uh, primarily uh, guiding and defeating and crucifying my flesh. Mm-hmm. Is, is that right? And that I'm in there as a new man, kind of participating mm-hmm. and uh, letting, staying in my lane, so to speak, and letting the process work for uh, this crucifix the crucifying the flesh process to be effective to mm-hmm. yeah i can speak to that so um, maybe maybe two points i'll try to remember the second the first point would be and this is in the spirit of what wolf Mueller's laid out for us via the scriptures is the most the most fundamental and clarifying thing we need to have is that there's no there's not this neutral ground of choosing between like i as the subject choose between good and evil there is an i a subject that does nothing but evil and there is an I in Christ Jesus, a subject that does nothing but the will of my Father. The, the fleshly I, the old Adam or old man, is so, is completely under the control of the devil. 
Um, and remember, you have, um, he's the unholy spirit. The new man is completely under the control of the Holy Spirit. And so these two, like, there's never going to be a compromise. It's the unholy spirit driving your flesh versus the Holy Spirit driving the new man. And this battle will not cease. Uh, in fact, it'll only intensify. It will not cease until you're, until you die. And then when you die, what dies? The old man, not the new man, not the spiritual man, the old fleshly man, he dies. And then the battle's over. So if you ever get to a point in your Christian life where you're like, well, there's not really any value anymore, it's like, oh, you better go see your pastor because you might not be a Christian anymore. Um, this, this is a nasty life and death, eternal life and death battle going on. Um, then the second component of that is uh, that, yes, there is a great... Okay, so when the Holy Spirit's working on the new man... Um, and, and they're kind of in this binary battle. It's either one or the other, the zero-sum battle. There is, um, within sort of the whole person, when we're not thinking, of, we're just thinking holistically about our experience, okay? And I think this may be what you're getting at, Barry, is this is a long game. This is not a battle. This is a war. And in many respects, it's a war of attrition. You and, and this is, but this is where Christ prevails. You may spend decades of your life battling a certain kind of sin and not overcoming it, but you're overcoming it in the forgiveness of sins that is in Christ Jesus. That is still winning. Okay. So that's what we fall back on. Like, yeah, everybody wants to advance and conquer the external manifestations of that. Who doesn't want to stop cussing? Who doesn't want to stop lying? Who doesn't want to stop wasting their time on fruitless, you know, endeavors? Um, so we battle these things and we want to make manifest victories and make, but sometimes we don't. And sometimes we even just look and you, and you go, Oh my gosh, the good that I want to do, I didn't accomplish and the evil I, don't want to do that, I ended up doing, who will save me, Christ Jesus. And in that moment, you actually have the victory. Because our victory never stops being that victory that Christ graciously gives us that we have by faith alone apart from works. And so that is that is ultimately the guarantee of victory. And so there is sometimes, I don't know, like while there's all this activity, there's also a great deal of passivity and attrition and endurance. One of the New Testament's favorite words is endure. Endure, endure, endure. There are going to be times where you can't advance. There are going to be times where you're getting beaten back. Don't worry. Endure. You're going to be okay. Christ has got you. Your salvation is safe in him. He has overcome the gates of hell. He has trampled Satan under your feet. And soon enough, the God of peace will trample him under your feet and you will prevail against the gates of hell along with Christ. So endure in the faith. And that takes us away from this performance-based thing too. And this is kind of one of the ways that American Christianity gets all hung up on like, okay, well then everything that, you know, it has a metric and we can um, quantify your progress and all of this. And that's a really childish and superficial way of looking at it um, because you don't even know what you're up against. Kind of like when you're fishing and you're you're reeling it in, um, and all of a sudden your your rod goes and you go. There's a split second in your mind before you do, even do any reaction. I don't know. Maybe you jerk into it really hard trying to set the hook, 
and then you realize it was a snag, and you're <laughs> you're two inches into the wood, and you're going to lose your lure, right? But you don't know you don't know what's on the other end of that thing, and that's a lot how it is battling Satan. Is it's like, well, are you battling Satan, or are you battling one of his minions, one of his lesser minions, or one of his greater minions? Seven of them, or seventy-seven of them. So just because you're you were able to make progress a year ago. And now all of a sudden your progress seems to be lost and gone. You don't know what's on the other end of that hook. You don't know what you're battling. You don't know. We don't know anything. We're fighting in the dark in that sense. But this is where the light of Christ says, In me you conquer. So endure. Trust me that this too is for your good. Trust me that this too is for the exercise and strengthening of your faith. It's for your glory now and in the future. And simply Rest in the grace of Christ, even as you begin to try to find a way in which you can fight and fight effectively. But truth be told, sometimes that takes a long time. So anyway, Barry, I, I'm sorry I went so lengthy on that, but I wanted to try to do justice. There is a lot of um, kind of this feeling of passivity and suffering, just like in the technical sense of allowing it to happen. It's happening. I can't stop it from happening. What do I do? Endure. And in this is victory. Yes, please. Um, one second. Let's get you a microphone. I'm just trying to connect some dots here. Mm-hmm. But I think you're succeeding in opening up my eyes to the, this very subject of the book, Has American Christianity Failed? And in Diane's question about how these things happen, it seems to me that part of the failure is the teaching of the church says that everything should go all right. Yeah. You see? Yeah. Hence the, the example about the dog trainer. Right. The, uh, purpose-driven dog, dog yeah. training and <laughs> get the best. It right. should, these, it's like, because I've heard these things. If, if God is, uh, God doesn't want you to be sick. He's not the author of sickness and disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like they're setting you up for failure in teaching that you shouldn't have problems or worries if you just come and do this or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does exactly. that make my? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That is probably the single largest way in which American Christianity fails is it gives us this impression that now that you're a Christian, life is going to go easy. And because God is for you, who can be against you? So, I mean, complete misapplication of that text you're going to have your best life now. Well, why am I not? Well, buy my book to find out. Then that, you know, And so it goes. And then you get a bunch of people who are burnt out, jaded. Actually, what, what really happens here is you have two different kinds of people as the fruits of this kind of thing, when it's done in its crassest form. You've got, you've got the self-righteous who go, pulling it off, this is my best life now. Glorious, I've arrived. Hope you all can be like me one day. Uh, and then you've got the other people who are, in, sitting in the pews going, ha-ha, yeah, me too. <laughs> Knowing that, like, it's not that glorious on my end of things. Uh, and there's kind of an embarrassment uh, to, you know, to be able to say that, that, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting the crap kicked out of me this week in the spiritual warfare. It's bad. Pray for me. Absolve me. You know, um, comfort me with the gospel. Uh, help me understand how I can grab a toehold and a foothold so I can stand up and fight this thing again. And, and then to have that be centered in the baptismal grace of Christ. 
and in the sufficiency of Christ and in the victory of Christ and the cross of Christ. That's what we're missing. We're missing all the substance, and we've we've cheapened it, and we've we've got the how and the what and the why, as Wolf Mueller says, all distorted here. So thank you for that. Was there? Did I see one other hand or no? Okay, I was going to squeeze you in, but since you're imaginary, we've uh, hit. We've hit 9 o'clock, so um, I hope this is fruitful. We're going a little slower than I had anticipated. Uh, maybe that's true for the whole book. But if it's fruitful for you, we'll keep going at this pace. If not, come whisper to me that you'd like to pick up the pace, and I'll take that into account next week. The Lord be with you.